chapter 9, to all of you. Returning to Isaiah 52, if you would, because here I would like us to see if we recognize anyone. Isaiah 52, verse 1. Awake, awake. Does that sound like Matthew 25? About all those who slumbered and slept. Put on your strength, O Zion, or the church. Put on your beautiful garments. Now there's also another phrase we might recognize. We have been saying in this day and age, prepare the bride or put on your garments. So Isaiah 52 is obviously speaking of the church. O Jerusalem, the holy city, for henceforth there shall no more come to you the uncircumcised and the unclean. God is going to make a separation. Remember in Revelation it says there will come a time when the just will remain just and the filthy will remain filthy. But God is going to bring a time about when the unclean, the unholy, the unrighteous will be turned away. Sifted, sorted out, whatever scriptures you might want to use here, for there are many. Shake yourself from the dust. Get up off the ground and sit down, O Jerusalem. So get up off the ground, and I assume the imagery might be here. Once you get off the ground and shake the dust off yourself, having been asleep on the ground, sit down, perhaps in a chair, and listen, because here's a story for you. Loose yourself from the, hand, the bands of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. And we have many scriptures we could use to show that we are to depart from Babylon. Come out of her, my people, it says. So this message, obviously, is for us. For thus says the Lord, you've sold yourselves for naught. You've uh, let yourselves become a part of Babylon and sold yourselves pretty cheaply to this system of this world. And you shall be redeemed without money through the sacrifice of Christ, through the government of God. For thus says the Lord God, My people went down aforetime into Egypt to sojourn there. The Assyrian oppressed them without cause. We put ourselves into slavery to the system around us. Now therefore, what have I here, says the Eternal, that my people have taken away for nothing? That worldwide take us away into Babylon for nothing? They that rule over them make them to howl. Now, if you haven't recognized the greater church of God up to this point, you should, announce, you should recognize it right now. Because there's been an awful lot of howling going on. We have been misused. We have been abused. Government is wrong. Hierarchy is wrong. Name your poison. Uh, any kind of rule over or any... One who sets themselves up as rank is looked upon as like spoiled fish. A rank smell as opposed to a position or in a, a place of authority. It's looked down upon. And government has become sort of a four-letter word in the greater church of God today. We sort of compress it into that. It's longer than that, but uh, that's the way it comes out. So we'll stop there in Isaiah. And let's ask some questions now. If government over us, and rule is there, is it not, and has been there, and it's made us howl, and pain and grief and suffering and agony, and we all have our world, our worst, our worst stories. Is it then, since it has been abused, and since there are problems, and we have been howling about it, and you can read 
Ezekiel 34 and Jeremiah 23, you probably have about the misuse that the shepherds have had with the sheep. So it's there, and I won't say it hasn't been misused and abused, but then is it wrong to have leadership, rulership, organization, government, authority? Because we're howling, does that make it wrong? Another question, did hierarchy, as some claim, come from Babylon? I've heard that argument many, many times over the years and finally focused on it. Is hierarchy of Babylon and ungodly? Today we're going to do a survey of the governments outlined in the Bible. Uh, time fails me to cover all of it because the Bible is replete with it. But we'll cover as much as we have time for. And let's see what kind of government God would want what kind of government has existed. And let's look at hierarchy first. If you look it up in, Dic in Webster's Dictionary, you find the prefix higher, H-I-E-R. And even Webster says that higher means sacred or holy. Now that's strange sounding, isn't it? The first part of the word is sacred or holy, higher. And then in uh, the Exegetical Dictionary of the New Testament, page 161, uh, under the word arch, or arch, A-R-C-H-E, I can't even pronounce the Greek here, but it means beginning or power, and it says that it always signifies primacy, whether it be of rank, power, dominion, kingdom, or office. So higher means sacred, and number one in rank or office, so it means sacred office. And number one sacred office is the very beginning of the meaning of hierarchy. I also checked it in another uh, reference, the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, and they said essentially the same thing. Now, Back to Webster. Hierarchy. A division of angels. They don't even use a, let's say, a modern corporate or a military definition of the word here, but they go immediately back to the Bible. A division of angels. Church government by a hierarchy. A graded or ranked series. Some of you may think you don't like this already. And some who are not with us probably would take that approach. Now, in Jude 9, it says that there was an archangel. And that's probably where they're getting their definition, Jude 9. Yet Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. He did not have the power to go over Satan, because they were originally of the same rank, same power. And he did not bring a railing accusation even against the devil, but called on a higher rank, the Lord, and said, The Lord rebuke you. Because he and Lucifer had at one time been the same rank, and even though Lucifer was no longer Lucifer but Satan, uh, that was still recognized. 
So Satan's authority, Satan's power, even Michael the archangel recognized. Interesting, isn't it? But Michael was in the highest rank of angels. He was in the primary position, or first in line as an angel. There are also seraphim, various other uh, ranks of angels. I'll quote Daniel 10 here. Perhaps we don't need to go back to it. You know the story very well. I'll just briefly rehearse it. Where an angel was bringing Daniel a message. And he was withstood by the prince of Persia, or an angel of higher rank than he was. And though God had sent him to deliver a message to Daniel, he couldn't get through. And Daniel was down there fasting for an answer. Twenty-one days he fasted. Why doesn't God answer? Well, God had. It's just that the angel had been waylaid by a higher-ranking demon. And only when he called out, and finally Michael, the archangel, came, and they overpowered the prince of Persia, then the message came through. Daniel sort of suffered and wondered what was going on in the meantime. But there are wars going on in the heavens that we don't see. We war against principalities and powers and so on, we are told. So there are angels ranked directly under God. That's where hierarchy began. God created rank among the angels. That's way before Babylon ever existed. Now what was the problem here? Revelation 12.4 says Lucifer ruled one-third of the angels, and he drugged them with his tail from heaven. So we know that the third of the angels fell when Lucifer rebelled against God and became Satan. Isaiah 14 says that he was lifted up in pride, and that's what the problem was. You see, Satan did not have, or Lucifer at the time, did not have a problem with hierarchy. He was in a hierarchy. He ruled one-third of the angels of God. What he did come to have was a problem with where he stood in the hierarchy. That was the real problem. Because he said, I should be God. I should be primary, number one. Being a primary angel, one of three rulers, is not enough for me. I should be God. So Lucifer had no problem with hierarchy. God had instituted it, and Lucifer got along fine with it, as long as he felt like he could be number one. Now let's get this in terms that we might understand. Let's say you have a three-year-old child, and he comes in and says, Mom, I want a cookie. And Mom says, we have a hierarchy here, and I'm in charge, and you can't have a cookie. And the kid throws himself on the floor, screams at the top of his lungs, beats the floor, beats his mom's ankles, and Dad comes in and says, what's going on? Well, well Junior wants a cookie, and I said, no, so he's pitching a fit. So Dad said, look, Junior, listen to your mother. You can't have a cookie. So he starts screaming all over again. Now, does this child like hierarchy? You bet he does. This kid loves hierarchy, and he's making a move to go to number one. <laughs> he doesn't hate hierarchy. He just hates his position in it. 
That should start ringing some bells. He has pride. He has vanity. He has selfishness. He wants what he wants. He wants to be cookie sheriff. He will dole them out when and where he wants them doled out, even to the point of getting sick. Now, believe it or not, if you are a converted member of God's family, if you, if your baptism counted, if you have God's Spirit in you, you love hierarchy. I'll prove that. <laughs> because I know there will be a lot of skepticism at that statement. Now, you may not know you love it yet, but you do. I will see that. Now, what's going to happen with Satan's kingdom? The demons saw Satan rebel, and they rebelled with him. But then they began to think, well, I should be number one in this kingdom. And what happens? It all breaks down. It's like we have the central government of the United States, and you have all these sovereign uh, militia groups out here saying, we should rule our area. So let's hypothesize that they succeed and they tear down the central government of the United States. What happens next? Each militia group or sovereign citizen group makes its own rules. Now what happens when they begin to conflict with one another over boundaries, over turf, whatever, like gangs? Then they begin to fight among themselves. It all falls apart, doesn't it? Then we have what the dictionary defines as anarchy. An or ana, one uh, the prefix, one of its definitions is back or against, backward. And the definition of anarchy, this is interesting, the absence of government, a utopian society of individuals who enjoy complete freedom without government. Now, is that God's definition of anarchy, or is that simply Webster's definition of anarchy? Can you even imagine a utopia in which no one had any controls at all? America is almost a utopia now, isn't it? Because we're free to do whatever we want, whenever we want, and they're abusing and misusing powers of speech, powers of assembly, powers of anything you want to name, to do and say any foul, rotten, evil thing they want and say, leave me alone. I got my rights. And what's it doing to you and me? It's imprisoning us in our homes. We have to lock our doors. We have to lock our cars. Our freedoms are shrinking because of this so-called utopia. At the same time, the government gets stronger and stronger against us. That's a different story. The king, Satan's kingdom at this point is divided, and it will not stand. They have anarchy. <laughs> Everybody wants to be number one. Now let's move on. What about the Garden of Eden? Here's another situation, just as in the angels, where God, the Father, and Jesus Christ rule the angels directly. And what happened? To some degree, it failed because of the pride of one angel which was then given to, or directed at and accepted by one-third of the angels. So then God makes man. 
and you are in a, an absolutely perfect setting. There's nothing wrong with Adam. There's nothing wrong with Eve. They're both perfect physical, mental specimens with no degeneration or any kind of problem whatsoever. And they are being ruled directly, face-to-face, mouth-to-mouth, by God himself. Did this work? Along came Satan at this point and gave them an argument. You will be number one if you'll just eat of this tree. You will be number one. You'll be just like God, he said. You'll understand good and evil. You will be like God. Same problem. And they bit. I want to be ranked number one, they said. I'll eat that. I want to know good and evil. And it failed, didn't it? So now we have two examples of beings being ruled directly by God. Correct form of government. Everything done exactly right by the one in charge. And we have two failures, at least to some degree, when one-third left of the angels and Adam and Eve, a complete failure. Now let's move on to Moses. Here Deuteronomy 33.10 says that I ruled through Moses face to face. I spoke directly with Moses, and it had failed with Adam and Eve, me ruling them directly, so I appointed a man. Maybe you would look to a man, and I will tell directly Moses what to do, and then he will tell you, will this work for you? Oh, yes, they said, this will work. This will work fine. Let's go to Acts 7. Acts 7, and begin in verse 35. This Moses, whom they refused, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? The same did God send to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel which appeared to him in the bush. This is that Moses, verse 7, 37, which said to the children of Israel, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up to you of your brethren like to me. Him shall you hear. This is he that was in the church in the wilderness. So God considered ancient Israel a church, physical, with physical promises, but a church, and gave them a form of government, hierarchy, top down. People have said, well, it wasn't. It was just Moses as, as one leader, right with Christ. But then Jethro uh, threw this problem in there by saying you ought to have captains of tens, captains of hundreds, and so on. God accepted that, if you read the whole account. God said, that's fine. Sure. He accepted hierarchy in the church in the wilderness. Verse 39, to whom our fathers would not obey, but thrust him from them, and in their hearts turned back again to Egypt. Christ even married them in this case, and they whored after others. Another failure. What about kings? The people thought, well, let's try kings. We want a king like the Gentile nations around us. What did God say in Hosea 13:11? I gave you a king in anger, and later I took him away in wrath. Because the people 
picked a king. He said, okay, you want to pick a king? Go ahead and pick a king. We'll see what happens here. See, man has been refusing God's rule all the way down. Any form of government God laid out, they rejected, refused, would not follow, didn't work. Their king, Saul, failed. God pointed a king himself. And he spoke to David a few times, but for the most part, David and then Solomon ruled on their own. That didn't work either, did it? Through all the kingly lines, you had a lot of bad kings and a few good kings. So the system simply didn't work. You'll probably begin to see a common denominator here. So then God instituted the judges. Can't submit to a king. We'll just have judges. First Samuel 8, 7. They have not, not rejected you, Samuel, a judge. They've rejected me. God took it personally. So that too failed. Then we go on to a democracy of sorts. Judges uh, 21, verses 24 and 25. Here we have a, a sort of a form of democracy. Uh, let me get back here if I can find it and read it. And the children of Israel departed tents at that time, every man to his tribe and to his family, and they went out from tents, every man to his inheritance. So the government just basically broke down and everybody went home. In those, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. So everyone was pretty well free to have a bill of rights and do just as he pleased. Now you can imagine how well that worked. <laughs> That failed, too. We have that in the United States today to one degree or another, and we see our society falling apart. Men cannot rule themselves on that level, and our government is shot through, even though they were able to design with checks and balances, it's shot through with payola, a graft, greed, misuse and abuse of authority. Democracy is not working. It's working sort of partially, but it's about to fail completely. That doesn't work either. Now what about Gentile governments, so-called? Let's go to Proverbs 8 very quickly. Proverbs 8 and verse 15. Proverbs 8 and verse 15. By me, this is speaking of God, by me princes rule and nobles, even all the judges of the earth. All kinds of governments. God says, by me they rule. By me princes rule. Well, let's see, I guess, uh, yeah, by me kings reign and princes decree justice. By me princes rule and nobles, even all the judges of the earth, he says. So, by God's authority, all government is out there. We'll see this a little more clearly. Let's go to Daniel 4. Daniel 4. <clears throat> We're going to see that this whole man thing, this whole exercise down here, is to teach us about government. God is recreating himself. That's his specific purpose statement in Genesis. But the lesson we have to learn is a lesson of government. And that's what God is putting us through. Daniel 4, <clears throat> verse 17 
This matter is by the decree of the watchers and the demand by the word of the holy ones to the intent that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomsoever he will and sets up over it the basest of men. God sets up the governments. He has a purpose. His ultimate purpose is to teach everybody on earth that he is the ruler. That's his goal. That's the intent. And it will surprise you, I think, when we get into this a little deeper, where the Babylonians got their government. Let's go down to chapter 5 and uh, verse 18. O you king, the Most High God, gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, a kingdom and majesty and glory and honor, and for the majesty that he gave him, all people, nations, languages, trembled and feared. Whom he would he slew, and whom he would he kept alive, and whom he would he set up, and whom he would he put down. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar could rule over and have hierarchy or rank, and he could pick up and put down people as he pleased. And God did it. So we shall see. Now I have chapter 6, verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom a hundred twenty princes, which should be over the whole kingdom, and over these three presidents, of whom Daniel was ranked first, that the princes might give accounts to them, and the king should have no damage. And Daniel was preferred above the presidents and princes, because an excellent spirit was in him. His government was working because of an excellent attitude. Daniel was ruling and ruling well, and that's why he got promoted. God set up this government. Chapter 4, verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all whose works are truth, and his way is judgment, and those that walk in pride he is able to abase. Verse 32, the last part, that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomsoever he will. Says it again in verse uh, 25. What we're finding here is that God actually gave Nebuchadnezzar his power. He set up Nebuchadnezzar as king and the ranks under it, including Daniel. Now, people say it was a Babylonian government. But what about Daniel? He was in the middle of it. He was the ruler right under Nebuchadnezzar in that government. Is he going to be destroyed? Uh, Hebrews 11.33 says Daniel is going to be in the kingdom of God. God set that government there. That sounds like heresy, doesn't it? <laughs> in most cases, the hierarchy from Babylon. You can't have it. can't have it in the church. And yet we find that God established hierarchy long before man or long before Babylon and not only that, he's the one who set up the hierarchy of Babylon. He's going to teach the Gentiles something, too, not just the Israelites. Now, the Gentiles are abusing hierarchy, and that's mentioned in the New Testament by Christ himself. Now, let's go to the New Testament. People say there is no hierarchy in the New Testament. Everything is done democratically or by councils of people or whatever. 
Let's consider it from Acts 2 on. Now, the first, one of the first scriptures that people often turn to to prove their hierarchy, it's Hebrews 13:7 and Hebrews 13:17, and there it says to obey them that have the rule over you. But then someone will, will object, and they'll go to their Greek dictionary, and they will say, yeah, but rule and obey go really mean rule and obey. But it's softer in the Greek. And I'm not going to get into a striving over words is exactly what that means. I want to show some examples in the Bible. And you can't strive over words. God tells us don't strive over words. So let's get some concrete examples to find out what kind of government God instituted in the New Testament church. Let's start off in 1 Timothy 2. I'm going to flip through some scriptures here very fast. You can drop them down, study them more later if you want to, but we will establish something here. 1 Timothy 2, verse 11. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection, but I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. So he said there's a hierarchy there. I rank the husband number one in authority, the wife number two. Does that mean she's a second-class citizen? No, that's a different subject. Heirs together, he says. But still, there is a rank of authority there. And Paul didn't consort with uh, a board of people before he made this statement. He just said, this is the way it's going to be, folks. Do it. Chapter 3, verse 4. Speaking of the qualifications of elders, one that rules well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. So on the family level, there is a hierarchy. The fathers, the mothers we saw above, and now the children must be in subjection. If that child lays down on the floor and screams to be cookie sheriff, he's supposed to be straightened out. He's not supposed to become cookie sheriff. Because then he's ranked number one in the hierarchy. He gets his way by being a spoiled brat. Chapter 4, verse 7. He tells Timothy here, Refuse profane and old wives' fables, and exercise yourself rather unto godliness. So, Timothy was told to refuse false doctrine. Was he told to have a doctrinal committee? to decide if this new thing that came up is good or bad? No, he was told to refuse it. And he had the authority to refuse it. Verse 11, these things command and teach. Paul is doing what? He is pulling rank on Timothy. Timothy was a man working under Paul. Paul wrote these pastoral books to teach Timothy, Titus, and others how to lead the church. And he gave them instructions to command those under their authority. Command and teach these things. Don't just suggest them, command them. Well, let no man despise your youth. Some say, well, yeah, there's little government there, but it's just the old men that are to be the elders. But this was a young man. He said, don't let anybody despise your youth. You are an elder ordained properly. Make sure everyone understands that. Interesting. 
chapter 5, verse 17. Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. Now, there's a lot said in that verse. Number one, he says, I am Paul. I am instructing you, Timothy, to tell or to analyze how well those under you are doing. If they are ruling well, so there's, there's evil rule and good rule. If they're ruling well, pay them double. So not only was their hierarchy and rank in, or shown here, but there was also payroll shown here. They had a payroll in the early New Testament church to the elders. Especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. So he shows that those who are working in the spiritual capacity had greater responsibility and should be recompensed more. So there was even rank in the pay scale. How can this be denied? I mean, this, is, this isn't a striving over Greek words. This is just simply what it says. This is an example of what they were doing. Chapter 6. Now, this one will blow you away. Here's another form of government that was allowed within the church of God in the New Testament. Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. There were, in the church of God, those who had probably the most repugnant form of government that we know of, that is, slavery. For one was the master, the other was the slave. Paul didn't say to all the slave masters, this is not a proper form of government. Release all your slaves. No, he regulated how the master was to treat the slave and how the slave was to treat the master. Incredible, isn't it? This isn't the only place that he does that. So he took that government and accepted it in the church. What about the book of Philemon? There is where uh, the slave had apparently run away. And Paul said, I'm sending your slave back to you. Please accept him as if he was my own son. Now there's something fraught with peril if you stop to think about it a little bit. Here was a man who had a slave, and the slave apparently had run away, if you read the context. And there had to be bitterness there. Toward the master, he wouldn't have run away in the first place. And there probably was great bitterness in the master himself toward the slave who had left him. And Paul approached this very, very diplomatically. And I had a beautiful lesson of tact here. But he told him to take it back. Not only that, but what would the attitudes be? They had to suck it up. They simply had to get rid of any bitterness, any rancor, any hard feelings that that situation may have generated and go back to where they had been. Now, you talk about Christianity being called on. Wow. I hope God does not ever take us back to that form. But there it was already in existence, see. So rather than saying, this is no good now, he simply regulated it. I don't 
don't anybody get me wrong. I'm not saying slavery is good. We have to qualify everything, I guess. I'm not saying it's good. But I'm saying since it was there, God, through Paul, accepted that form for that time in the New Testament church. Just like they accepted polygamy. If a man came into the church and already had four wives, he could keep his four wives. He couldn't be an elder, but he could keep his four wives. Couldn't marry any more, but he could keep those. Would it be fair to tell three of them, well, toodaloo, sweetie, you'll make your own living now. Take your kids with you. I don't want them anymore either. That wouldn't have been fair. So it says, don't worry about it. Mr. Armstrong did the same thing in Africa, in this age, where people came into God's church who had more than one wife. And we instructed them, don't marry anymore, but you don't have to get rid of the ones you want, so that you have. I heard, <laughs> excuse me, I heard one evangelist say, well, they ought to just get rid of all but one. Poor, poor judgment. There was a family there, and kids that loved each other. And why is it dependent on that man? Well, let's not do any more of this, but live the best you have with what you've already got. You're already married. You're already joined. And that's what Paul did. Now, where was I? First Corinthians 11. Let's go back there. First Corinthians 11. Verse 1, be you followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Not blind allegiance, but as I follow Christ. <laughs> now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things, and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. There's hierarchy. Very clear ranking. Don't need to argue about the Greek here. Colossians 3. Colossians 3. And let's begin down in verse 18. Now understand here, in the Colossian church, there were Greeks and Jews. And in those days, the Greeks and Jews hated each other as much as probably any race hates another race today whether it be in Asia or Africa or the United States or wherever it is for their bad race relations. These people despised one another. And here they were sitting in the same congregation. It wasn't like we just have brother to brother here that come into God's church from our society where we're all basically Americans. But this was a situation where these two groups of people despised, would not even speak to one another. And here they were to be brothers. And what does Paul say? To be kind and gentle and forbearing and loving toward one another in verse 13, 14. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, verse 15. And then he goes on, to, on down to explain the hierarchy. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fit in the eternal. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Children, obey your parents. He's running right down the line of hierarchy in the family, isn't he? Children, obey your parents. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger. Servants, obey in all things your masters. Or slaves, obey your owners. 
not with eye service as men pleasers, not just to get along, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. He said, this is a form of government that will teach you what you need to know if you're going to be part of the kingdom of God. Use your situation for that. Whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. Knowing that the Lord you shall that of the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. If you treat your slave properly, you serve the Lord Christ. If you treat your master properly, you serve the Lord Christ. Are we not bond slaves to Christ? That's an analogy he uses to, to show our relationship with him. We have a slavery government with God himself. That's a form of government God uses, an analogy he uses. He uses many analogies to describe our relationship to him, whether it be family, bond slaves, there are several. Uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, give to your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So he uses the analogy here to show the relationship between us and God as master-slave and what was happening here on the earth. Isn't it amazing what you can learn from? You find yourself in a, what looks like a really, really bad situation. And God says, smile, learn. Here you go. You can learn about your relationship with me from this. Your attitude's right. Well, these are hard words. They were hard words for those people. It may not be too hard for us sitting here. But if you want to take it back a few years in America, between the blacks and the whites, and some of the problems we still have. These are tough words. And as I said, I'm not advocating by any means that we go back to that. But God said, if you find yourself in that situation, don't fight it. Learn from it. For God can use any form of government to teach us, to show us, to help us, to learn about him. Second uh, Timothy now, chapter 4, verse 2. He tells Timothy here, Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort. Now, you have to be in a position of some kind of authority in order to do that. Otherwise, somebody will say, I'm just as good as you are, pull on you. Won't they? There is hierarchy here. It's over and over. Uh, Titus 1, 13. <clears throat> now, this is, this is strong. This witness is true, wherefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. So Paul tells Titus to rebuke sharply. Most Americans would say, buddy, you ain't telling me what to do. And we hear a lot of that. We howl in the church of God, as we read in Isaiah 52. But Paul says you have that authority to rebuke sharply if you need to. Chapter 3, verse 10. A man that is an heretic after the first and second admonition rejects. Don't have a vote. Put the heretic out, he tells Titus. Now, does that fit with Paul's administration? 1 Corinthians 5. Did he go back to Matthew 18 in this particular case of church administration and say, 
Well, this man's committing fornication, adultery in the uh, congregation, and uh, you should go before him since he's offended you by then. They weren't being offended. They liked it. They thought it was great. They were of Corinth. He was Corinthianizing. This was everyday life for them. They say, hey, yeah. oh, so-and-so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's doing? That's, that's, maybe we don't all do that. What would a council of those people have accomplished? They'd have just patted the guy on the back. They wouldn't have put him out of the church. So Paul exercised his authority. And he said, I have already judged this matter from afar. That man out. So they did. Then it came time to let him back, and now they were all self-righteous and said, now he's a sinner. So then Paul had to devote several chapters to telling them what their attitude ought to be now that he had repented and letting him back. So he had to instruct them again. And he used his authority to do it. He said there in chapter 4, verse, uh, well, the last two or three chapters of the, verses of the chapter, Shall I come softly or bring a big stick? It's a quote from Teddy Roosevelt, but that's paraphrased as what Paul said. He had the stick. He could use it. Now, this sounds tough to us, and we don't want to hear this, maybe. It doesn't sound foreign to our ears. But what about it, Dad or Mom? Do you want to have authority over that kid? Do you want hierarchy in your, hierarchy in your family? Or do you want to let the little brat run things? So you believe in hierarchy. As long as you are at the top. And you love it when it works. But we all hate it when it doesn't work. What time is it? Uh, I have so much more. Perhaps there's enough here to... Uh, let's go to Ephesians 6. Here's one more. I think this one was about slavery again. Ephesians 6. <clears throat> and down in... Uh, well, verses 1 through 10. Here, it again rehearses the family hierarchy. And it talks about masters and servants again. Uh, let's see. Verse 5. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and singleness of heart, as to Christ. If you are a slave owned by someone, treat your owner like he was Jesus Christ. Not with thy service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men. Treat him just like you would treat Jesus Christ, knowing that whatsoever good thing any man does, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. And you masters, do the same thing to them, forbearing threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is there respect to persons with him. So here again, he tells them what the relationship ought to be. There are others, <clears throat> but we won't go into those because I have other information here I want to get to. 1 Corinthians 12, let's go back there. We're familiar with this, talking about spiritual gifts. Verse 5, 1 <clears throat> Corinthians 12, There are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. There are diversities of operations, but the same Lord. We have seen a broad panorama of different types of government that God either allowed or instituted in the angel kingdom, in the Garden of Eden, in Moses' day in Egypt, 
uh, right on through, not to go back and review them all. A broad variety of administrations. We get all hung up on is this exactly the correct form of government? Well, God shows there are all kinds of administrations and all kinds of operations that he's allowed to go on. And this chapter goes on down to show that there are rank, there is rank within the different parts of the human body. And he uses this to explain hierarchy. Does the foot rule? Does the rear end rule? Does the brain rule? What rules your body? What parts are absolutely essential in order to have the body function? The heart, the liver, the brain, you can name a bunch of articles that are absolutely necessary. And then you have those who are of lesser rank in the body that you could actually get along without. The body would suffer, but you could get along without it. But you have to have those which rule and show the body how to react, what to do. If the feet ruled, what if, what if they disagreed with each other? You'd get tanglefoot. No, the brain tells both feet what to do. We covered that in the article on I Love Government, so I won't go into that anymore. But I do want to tie 1 Corinthians 12, which we're all familiar with, back with Matthew 5. Because these are the words of Jesus Christ himself, Matthew 5, <clears throat> verse 27. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that whosoever looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if your right eye offend you, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is profitable for you that one of your members should perish, and not that your whole body should be cast into the fire. And if your right hand offend you, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is profitable for you that one of your members should perish, and not that the whole body should be cast into the fire. Now what's he saying? He's saying if your eye tries to rule, don't let it. If your hand tries to rule, don't let it. It's of lower rank, but your eye will try to rule like the kid in the cookies. A man's eyes are wired directly to any woman walking down the street, it seems. He's got to learn to control his eyes. Otherwise, they'll roll, and they'll bug out, and they'll follow the woman down the street. <laughs> Women are getting the same way. Let's don't get into all this. Venus, <laughs> Venus and Mars here. But you see, it's a simple analogy. God says, don't get your rank all mixed up. The brain, the heart, has to rule the eye and the hand. Jesus Christ himself uses that analogy, and very effectively here. Matthew 7, verse 29. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now that doesn't really bother us, that Christ had authority and taught that way. But didn't he set an example that we should follow in his steps? 1 John 2, 6, I think it is, 2, 4. To walk as he walked, 1 Peter 2, 21, the first one I quoted, but to walk as he walked in 1 John 2. So the ministry is supposed to teach the same way Christ taught, not to be a reed shaken in the wind, not to 
speak smooth and easy things so that we sound like a violin. But to cry aloud, to spare not, to speak as having authority. For that's what we need. Now let's carry the thought on down. Uh, Matthew 8 and verse 5. Matthew 8 and verse 5. When Jesus came to Capernaum, there came to, the, to him the centurion, beseeching him, saying, Lord, my servant lies at home sick of the palsy. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy you should come under my roof. Just speak the word, it'll be done. Here's a man who understood authority. Christ marveled at him because he said, when I give rule orders to one of my men, they simply do it. And the Roman army, if they didn't do it, they didn't get another chance. They just simply lost their head. It was easy, or whatever punishment they wanted to give them. I tell a man to come, and he comes, and my servant do this, and he does it. Verse 10, when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say to you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And many will come, shall come from east and west. The children of the kingdom will be cast out because they didn't get the point of government that the Gentiles got. becomes very, very important, doesn't it? He believed in authority. What did Christ tell the disciples? Matthew 16, 18, to Peter. You make decisions, judgments on this earth, I will bind them in heaven. The ministry today tries to make a judgment on a situation, and we get all kinds of flack. You're doing this, you're doing that, you're being partial, you're being this, you're being that. You want to make the judgments? Do you want the greater condemnation? It's easy to sit back there and say, I don't like your judgments. Why hasn't God caused you to render the judgments then? All right. <clears throat> what about the world tomorrow? We've seen governments from the beginning of the fourth creation of man what about the world tomorrow? What's that going to be like? Didn't I read somewhere that Christ is going to reign as King of kings and Lord of lords? He will be a Lord over and a King over other kings. He has stated very clearly, we'll just use one branch of the government because there are many, <laughs> but to rehearse this, one branch is Israel who will rule over them. David, directly under Christ. Christ is the King of King David. He will rule all twelve of the tribes of Israel. Then what? You have the twelve apostles. And he made it very clear to some of his disciples who came to him and said, Can we sit on the right and the left hand? We're not against hierarchy, understand, Master. But we'd like to be at the top of it. See? No, 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 fellows. This won't work. But the twelve apostles will be over the twelve tribes of Israel. Makes it very plain. So you got hierarchy. King of kings, king, kings under that. Very simple. These are just examples. These aren't Greek words. These are examples. It was before man, it was during man, and it will be after man. This way. In the world tomorrow. Let's go back to Luke 19. Luke 19, the parable of the pounds. 
What is the question back here? Luke 19. And let's begin down... Uh, what verse did I want? Verse 12. He said, Therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And he called his ten servants. Oh, he had servants. They were under him. They were ranked. And delivered them ten pounds and said to them, Occupy till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a message after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. Did you ever notice that the parable of the pounds is about government? That was the objection. When he came back, he called them and said, How much have you gained? Then came the first saying, Lord, your pound has gained ten pounds. He said to him, Well, you good servant, uh, you've done well. I'll put you in authority over ten cities. And the next guy had increased it five times, and he put him over five cities. And the one who hadn't increased it, hadn't even put it in the bank to draw usury, had his taken away. No authority, no place in the hierarchy. But the man who ruled five was under a man who ruled ten, because five plus five is ten. So there's hierarchy here in the government of God. There's organization here. There was sacred division and rank here, as the word means. Let's go on down. Uh, verse 26, For I say to you, that unto every one which has shall be given, and from him that has not, even that he has, shall be taken away from him. But those mine enemies, which would not that I should reign over them, bring here and slay them before me. Now this is an example of the kingdom of God. By the time we are in the kingdom of God, we will have realized that we love hierarchy or we will be burned up. It's that simple. God will not have anyone in his kingdom whom he cannot rule, as you've heard probably Herbert Armstrong say many times. Now, have I convinced you that you like hierarchy yet? <laughs> maybe, maybe not. I may have convinced you, well, let's say this, I don't think you can refute but there is such a thing. Emotionally, at this point, you may reject it, but you can't disprove it. And I challenge you to. Because these scriptures are very plain. Now, that said, let's see if we like it. How, how many of you know what Revelation 5.10 says here in the room? Is that one of your memory scriptures? Revelation 5.10, I see some people say yes. That's one we memorized a long time ago because we were beginning to learn that we could be a part of the kingdom of God, that we would be like God, and that God was recreating himself here. So Revelation 5, verse 10 is a scripture we committed to memory and has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Now, that was good news to most of us coming into the church of God when we first began to realize that the government of God is coming and that we can be kings and priests in the world tomorrow. How exciting a concept that is. Hey, I'm beginning to like this. Not only is hierarchy there, but I can be part of it, and maybe I can be a king and a priest 
in it. Now, things are looking up here. How far does this go? Let's skip back just a little bit here in the book of Revelation to chapter 2. Now, this is talking to the church. Verse 26, one of the churches. Well, let's, uh, let's start in, in chapter 2, verse 25. But that which you have already, hold fast till I come. Don't let it get away from you, brethren. And he that overcomes and keeps my works to the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I have received of my Father. Now we've heard that Christ is going to rule with a rod of iron. But right here he's telling us, if he gives us the government, we will rule with a rod of iron and we can shatter whatever needs to be shattered like a potter's vessel. That's awesome. That's scary. There's a great opportunity for abuse there if that is not controlled properly. But think of the power. You and I can be there. This is talking to the church. Maybe you don't think you're in that particular era of the church. He's talking to Thyatira there. All right, then, let's move on. Chapter 3, verse 9. Here is Philadelphia. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. These are human beings who say they're spiritually gods, or physically Israel, either one. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. Is there going to be rank and hierarchy in God's kingdom? These are all people now we're talking about, brethren. These are all human beings alive today. And God says that there will be a bride, there will also be guests at the wedding, first resurrection, who will not have the status of bride. <laughs> different rank, different authority. And he says right here that some people in the kingdom of God will have other people in the millennium worship at their feet. Now there is a difference between all people who were just human beings at one point. Incredible, isn't it? Put it in these terms, and Christ does. Chapter 3, verse 21. Even the land of sins, to him that overcomes, will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I am also overcome, and am set down with my Father in his throne. So if we've been part of Laodicea, and I think we all have to one degree or another, if we overcome, we will also rule, kings and priests. But it doesn't say kings and priests there, but rule anyway. I don't know exactly what level. Isn't it interesting, if you look at the history of man's governments, I think of South America in particular, I read about it in my history books as a kid, where you had, was it one Perón came in and he was the liberator, I think he was the one. My sixth grade history is correct. He was going to be the great liberator from tyranny. But what usually happens? The liberator becomes the tyrant. Because that's the way it works. With man with wrong attitudes. And these governments just seem to fail over and over and over again. Romans 13. We've seen this one. We probably know it pretty well. 
Let every soul be subject to the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God, and we saw that God even started the Babylonian hierarchy and put Nebuchadnezzar there. And he goes on down and tells us that we are to obey authority. See, it's the whole thing that God is trying to get over to us is our attitude needs to be of compliance and humility and not to be of, a, of the not to be followers of the king of pride, who is Satan, as it says in Job. So whatever authority is there, be it civil or whatever, he says, here's an opportunity for you to learn, to learn to swallow your pride and be compliant. We gripe about government a lot, don't we, in this country? Converted or unconverted, doesn't make any difference. The cross-section of our country, we gripe about government. Paul says, don't do that. <coughs> so be compliant. Here's a chance for you to learn some godly principles. May not be the best form of government, may not be administered properly, but here's your chance to learn. And if you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, there's no reward. But if you're persecuted, I mean for, for doing, what am I trying to say here? Uh, if you... Now it won't come to me. My brain is not ruling here. I've got to get this hierarchy straightened out. Uh, or maybe my, my tongue's certainly not going along with my brain. Uh, anyway, if you do what you're supposed to and are persecuted, where is the reward in that? It's when you're persecuted when you don't deserve it, when you didn't do it. That's what I'm trying to say is when you have a reward. So maybe you are misused and abused. Hey, here's your chance to shine. Here's your chance to show a beautiful attitude. That's what government's all about. God says you can use any government to your good. I'm quickly running out of time, so let's move on. God says exalt yourself, and God will humble you, humble yourself, and he will exalt you. Now, let's look at the church again in this context back in Micah, <clears throat> chapter 4. Micah 4, we'll see a problem here. He talks about, verse 8, You tower of the flock, or watchman of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come even the first dominion, the kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. So God is going to give government to the church. Now why do you cry out aloud? Is there no king in you? Is your counselor perished? For pangs have taken you as a woman in travail. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in travail. Now, here's the church. We complain about, we don't want any government over us, or we don't want any harsh government. And yet, at the same time, he says, why are you complaining? You don't have a ruler. You don't have a leader. Herbert Armstrong died, and it's been downhill ever since. Splitting, fracturing, cracking. Everybody trying to rule himself. And we have no continuity. We have no unity. We have no closeness. Instead, it rather gets worse. Why? Because our counselor has perished. Our king is dead. At the same time, we're griping. The problem is we don't have a leader. Isaiah 51. Let's continue the thought. Isaiah 51. Verse 18.
17. Awake, awake. Stand up, O Jerusalem. Let's stand up and be counted. Let's hear this. Which have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. Read Lamentations. We've talked about the fury of God and how he split the church up. You have drunken the dregs of the cup of trembling and wrung them out. We're about wrung out. There is none to guide her among all the sons whom she has brought forth. After Mr. Armstrong died, there's no one who has the spiritual uh, ability, the physical ability, to lead us. Different ones are trying, and their efforts are basically failing. We can't, there's no one we can all look to. Neither is there any that takes her by the hand of all the sons that she has brought up. These two things are come to you. Who shall be sorry, sorry for you? Desolation and destruction and the famine and the sword. By whom shall I comfort you? We just don't have any comfort, do we? We're frustrated. We're confused. We're upset. Because we have no one to lead. Now let's go to Hosea 3. Hosea 3. Remember, God gave us a mother. He married Israel. What happened to, to our mother Israel? Well, she rebelled and went into harlotries. And God used Hosea here. He said, marry a harlot. I want to get the picture across here. That was tough for Hosea to do, I suspect. Go out and find yourself a harlot and marry her. Just pick one off the street. That's like your mother, brethren. Same thing happened in the New Testament. Our church, our mother, went pouring after Babylon. All right. That creates a problem for us. Chapter 3, verse 4. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king and without a prince and without a sacrifice and without an image and without an ephod and without teraphim. Afterward, when we're done with this period of time, Shall the children of Israel return and seek the Lord their God, number one, and David their king, number two, and shall fear the Lord and, in, and his goodness in the latter days? I do believe God is going to send us a leader again once we get past this time of confusion and problem. But are we going to be ready to follow the leader? That's another subject. Now let's go back to Isaiah 52. We've made a full circle here. Isaiah 52. Remember when we started here, we said, Awake, awake. The rulers over you have made you howl. Now let's go down to verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that brings good tidings, that publishes peace, that brings good tidings of good, that publishes salvation, that says to Zion, says to the church, your God reigns. There is the message. Government of Jesus Christ is going to cover the whole earth eventually. Your watchmen, and this is probably talking about the two witnesses, shall lift up the voice. With the voice together shall they sing, for they shall see eye to eye when the Lord shall bring back Zion. So it's not talking just of Christ here, but two people seeing eye to eye and preaching what? Government. Thy God reigns is their message. It's the final witness to the church. It's the final witness to this world. 
And if they do not repent, Jesus Christ is going to come back and reign over them with a rod of iron. And they will accept that and comply with everything he says, or they won't have any rain. And if they still won't comply, things will get worse. And if they will not accept his rule, eventually they will go into the lake of fire. Some will hate hierarchy to the bitter end. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But somewhere in here, you and I are going to realize that we love hierarchy. It is a beautiful word. It is sacred rank set by God. How inspiring to know that God's government will never end and it will spread through the entire universe and there will be no more anarchy. There will be none that say, I want to be number one because they will accept their place in their hierarchy and there will be absolute peace and prosperity and goodwill, and happiness, and love, and kindness, and gentleness among all the people, because they all accept their place where Christ places them. He places members in the church wherever he wants them, and he will place people in his kingdom wherever he wants them, and it will be in rank and hierarchy as we saw earlier. We will live in hierarchy, and we will love it. We'll stop there. <clears throat> Next time, God willing, when I speak, I want to cover the aspect of how to make it work. We've seen hierarchy is in there. It's an indisputable. Now we will see how to handle misuses, abuses by leaders and followers. We will see that any form of government can work. Under some conditions, no form of government can work. It all depends on us. End of transmission.